Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast. You honor us by listening in, and we're grateful for you. Um, Before we begin, I just want to encourage you to not let this podcast replace the local church in your life. God has designed it so that we are to join a local church and serve that body of believers and be shepherded by the pastor of that church. And that's something no podcast can give you. And so if you're not involved in a local church, let me encourage you to find one as soon as possible. Enjoy our podcast. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21, we're going to continue the story of Elijah this week. Um, as we are going to continue doing for the next several weeks until we finish the story of Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2. Um, uh, you, you may notice if you were here last week and if you've been with us that I skipped chapter 20. Um, why did I do that? Well, um, we're looking at the story of Elijah. Second, 1 Kings 20 is absolutely important and absolutely um, scripture inspired by God. I'm going to summarize that chapter in a minute. But we're looking at the story of Elijah and Elijah does not appear in chapter 20. So the next time Elijah appears is chapter 21. So that's where we're going to pick up next. There was a nine-year-old girl. Her name was Malia. Her name means beautiful. She was nine years old, but she looked even younger than nine years old. Her and her family struggle to survive. They don't have clean water. They don't have sufficient food or basic medical care. They live in the northern region of Nepal among the Himalayan mountains. She has never been to school. There is no school in her village. And even if there was, she wouldn't be able to attend for financial reasons and because she has to help take care of her home. Her father left her mother years ago. One day a man came to her village. He saw Malia outside washing clothes at the local water tap. Um, We'll call him Nicholas. His name was Nicholas. Nicholas came into her village and saw her there washing clothes. He asked the locals, hey, where's that girl live? And they pointed, hey, that house over there. So he goes to that house. He knocks on the door. Malia's mother comes to the door. And he introduces himself. And he says, I noticed your daughter over there. She's very beautiful. And her mother says, yes, she is. She's, she's a hard worker, too. She takes care of her siblings and, and helps me out greatly. Nicholas says, I have an opportunity for her that, that can help provide for your family um, through Malia. Malia can do a job that I have, and it will provide for your family in a great way. Malia's mom is very interested. She's very interested. She wants a good job opportunity for her daughter. She wants a good future for her daughter, and she wants help for her struggling family. Nicholas tells her he can take Malia back to the city and give her a job there. She will do the same job she does here, but will make a lot more money for it. And then she can send money back to help her family. And Malia's mom is conflicted because it sounds like such a great opportunity. It sounds like such a good offer. But at the same time, she doesn't want her 
her, her daughter's separated from their family. She doesn't want to see her daughter leave. So she declines Nicholas's offer, and Nicholas leaves. As he leaves, he says, hey, just, just think on my offer. I may come back another day, and, and, I, and I'll talk to you about it then. So Nicholas leaves. For several days, she can't get the offer off of her mind. She thinks to herself, I know Malia would want a job like this. It would, be, it would help our family so much, it, which is what she wants to do. It would give her such a great future. Unlike the one that I have here in this, in this poor village. And one day, Nicholas shows back up. He, he comes back and he's got a bag of money in his hand. He says, hey, as a promise to provide for your family, here, I bring you 10,000 rupees. Rupees are the currency in Nepal. I bring you 10,000 rupees. Also, uh, I'll bring your daughter back here once a year to spend time with you if, if you let her come with me for this job. Malia's mom is very interested, and she's got 10,000 rupees here. And she'll still get to see her daughter some. About this time, Malia walks up to the house. She's been out. She walks up. Her mother sees her, and she explains to her um, the offer, and, and she's conflicted. Malia is conflicted. She doesn't want to leave her family, but she hears about this great opportunity. Her mom says, I believe this would be best for you and for our family, for you to go with this kind man. Malia believes her mom and agrees. Nicholas leads Malia down to the city, and they arrive at a restaurant. She's led up to a small bedroom in the upstairs of that restaurant. The cot there is for her to sleep on. It's got dirty, stained sheets. She walks into the room, and Nicholas says, Hey, why don't you get a good night of sleep, and I'll see you tomorrow. So Malia goes to sleep. She's going to sleep well, and she's going to wake up tomorrow. She's going to begin to work hard to provide for her family. She wakes up the next morning to Nicholas's voice. He comes in the room with some nice, new, and tight clothing for her to wear. He gives it to her. He tells her to get cleaned up, get dressed, and come down to the restaurant, and they'll talk about her job. So that's what she does. She goes down into the restaurant. She sits across the table from him. And this is what he says. Now, in order to provide for your family, all you need to do is do what I say. I've already paid your family a lot of money, so what you're going to do, you're going to work to pay that off, and then when, the money, when more money is made, I'll send that money to your family. Malia says, what would you like me to do? He tells her work's going to begin that evening. So that evening, he serves her dinner. Again, them two together, he serves her dinner. She doesn't know he's served her alcohol with that meal. Nine years old, he served her alcohol. She um, drinks the alcohol. He then escorts her upstairs to that bedroom. Her senses are impaired by the alcohol. He takes her to the bedroom, and he takes away her innocence. He 
She doesn't understand what has happened to her, but she knows it's not right. But he slowly, over time, warps her mind with manipulation and with drugs. Many more men get involved in Malia's story. She, um, they, they pay to have time with her. And this is her life for the rest of her life. They tell her if she ever runs away, they will go back to her village and they will bring her little sister back to take her place here. She eventually just has to learn to deal with it. There is no way out of this. Her family never receives another rupee. She never gets to visit them. Nicholas was a liar. For all her family knows, Malia went to the big city and forgot all about them. Malia has been human trafficked. She has become a product of human trafficking. She's been manipulated to think this was going to be good for her family and for her, and she's nothing more than a commodity now to be bought and sold. Statistically speaking, Malia will be dead in seven years, either from abuse, from disease, from malnutrition, from overdose of drugs, or from suicide. This is a true story that I just told you. I didn't make it up. It's a true story. And it's also the story of over 4 million people around the world. 4 million people. Little boys and little girls. This is injustice. And God hates injustice. I want you to hear that long story to start this out because I want you to see that, that what, what we're going to talk about here in 1 Kings 21, it's not just something that happened back in Bible times. It still happens today. This stuff still happens. And we're going to see how God deals with it. 1 Kings 21, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you the value of its money." But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on the bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. 
And Jezebel, his wife, said, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote a letter to ah in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, and she sent the letter to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the, at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel said, Je did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letter that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside. They took him outside the city, and they stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, and took possession of it. We skipped over chapter 20. Let me briefly summarize it so that you know where we're coming into the story at. Um, in chapter 20, um, that there's a war between Ahab. Ahab's the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, remember? Um, his kingdom's set up in Samaria. Um, he's the king of northern Israel. He goes to war against the king of Aram. The king of Aram's name is Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad comes to Samaria and says he's going to take all the silver, gold, wives, and children. And Ahab agrees, says, sure, you can have that. But then Ben-Hadad isn't satisfied. On second thought, I want more. And Ahab says, uh-uh, uh-uh, your first offer is what you get. You want a second offer? I'm not giving you it. So they mount up an attack. Uh, an unnamed prophet comes to Ahab and says to him, send a special group of soldiers and attack them early and, y and you will win. Ahab does it and they win. Ben-Hadad runs away. Ben-Hadad gets a new group of soldiers and he goes back for an attack. Israel wins against Ben-Hadad again. Ben-Hadad flees. He goes and hides. Ben-Hadad comes back. Um, he, he comes back to Ahab by himself this time, and he begs for mercy. And Ahab makes a covenant with him and sets him free. But God had told Ahab to destroy Ben-Hadad, not to set him free. So God sends that unnamed prophet. We don't get his name, just an unnamed prophet. He sends him to Ahab to denounce Ahab. The prophet says, since you didn't destroy Ben-Hadad, like God said, God will destroy you. Ahab goes home mad because some preacher told him, some preacher stepped on his toes. He goes home mad 
And it leads into where we're at in chapter 21. So Ahab is home. He looks out his window of his palace. He sees a vineyard. Ahab has the best house in the area. It's a palace. He looks out and sees this vineyard. And there's this, it's right next to his house. And he thinks, man, I want that vineyard. That's a nice vineyard. It's been kept up really well. It's got beautiful fruit throughout it. Man, I can take that. I can add some vegetables to it. I can make it a vegetable garden. I can have those grapes on that tree. I can have everything down there. I want that vineyard. And Ahab has money and he has power and he's not used to people telling him no. So he goes to Naboth. He says, hey, I want to buy your vineyard. He knocks on Ahab's door, says, I want to buy your land. I want to buy that vineyard. Naboth says, no. No. It's his family vineyard. Um, he, he doesn't want his family's property to be bought the same way many of you wouldn't. But at the same time, um, Leviticus 25 Verses 23 through 28, it's a part of the Old Testament law, the, the law that Israel is supposed to live by, but Ahab has been leading them not to. Um, that, that passage says that the, you're required to keep your land in your family. Naboth has a personal reason to not sell his vineyard, but he also has a um, theological reason not to do it. God says, don't do this. No, I'm not selling you my vineyard. Naboth is contrasted from Ahab here. Naboth is honoring his ancestors by not selling his vineyard. It's his land. He's supposed to keep it in his family. Ahab, on the other hand, has some ancestors, some that you might know of. One of them's name is David, King David. He is David's great-great-great-grandson. He is sitting on David's throne, yet he doesn't care what kind of royal line his family set up. He is the complete opposite of his grandfather David. Completely opposite. He just wants for himself. He's not a man after God's own heart. He doesn't worship God. He is the complete opposite. He's got no interest in keeping the line of his family going. He's completely his own thing. And Ahab has never been told no, so he doesn't know how to react. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes home, look at verse 4. He, he goes home, sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. And he lay down on his bed and he turned his face away and he would not eat. He's pouting like a child. He lays down in bed, he's stuck in his thumb. I can't get my vineyard, I wanted it, that was my toy. Grown man laying in bed sullen and pouting like a baby. So Jezebel comes in, his wife, Jezebel, the most wicked woman in the Bible, comes into the room, and she asks the same thing all of us are thinking. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? And Jeze Jezebel says, um, hello, you are king. You are the king of this land. Use your power. You want the vineyard? You're the king, get the vineyard. Jezebel is a Gentile. 
She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. She's not from the line of Israel. She's telling him to do exactly what she's seen Gentile kings do in all of her life. But the Jewish king is supposed to be different. The Jewish king is supposed to um, walk after the ways of God. They're supposed to be about others, not about themselves. They're not supposed to use their power for evil, but for good. But Samuel warned back when he set the king up. Remember, the Israelites didn't have a king, but they wanted a king because all the nations around them had a king. Um, they wanted a king, and Samuel, the Lord told Samuel, set it up. So Samuel said, um, well, God told Samuel, uh, no, Samuel said, I'm sorry, I'm getting it backwards. Samuel warned the people uh, in 1 Samuel 8, 14, um, the king will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive oil orchards and give them to his servants. Huh. Ahab takes the best of your vineyards. How about that? It's like Samuel knew what he was talking about. You see, the king in Israel is supposed to be the line directly to Jesus, and it is. Um, it comes through the line of Judah, the southern kingdom, but the, the, the king came from the line of David. The king in Israel is supposed to be a representation of the king that is to come, Jesus. And Jesus is a, 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 di a much different kind of king than Ahab. Praise the Lord. He commands his followers to be different than this. He says in Matthew 20, 25 and 26, don't lord your power over people like the Gentiles do, like Jezebel does. If you are going to be great, he says, you've got to be a servant. You want to be great? You want to be the highest form of greatness? Get on your knees and wash feet. Be a humble servant. Don't think of yourself and serve in the most humiliating form of ways. So Jezebel comes up with a plan. She's going to handle all this on her own while, Naboth lays, while Ahab lays there and cries. She um, forges a letter by Ahab, sends it out, proclaims a fast. Um, hey, bring this fast together, and we're going to kill Naboth. She disguises it behind religion, doesn't she? People tend to try to do that if they want to get people to buy into something disguise it behind religion because people will because you can you can fool the religious people if you if you attach god to it right you know adolf hitler during the holocaust was was he was known for taking photos of himself that looked like he was going in and out of church showing people that he was a christian you should follow his movement because he's a christian and he loves god he goes to church but Christians don't murder six million people in a gas chamber. Yet many Christians in the day bought into it. Others didn't, but didn't do anything. There were, there were Christians who absolutely sought to take Hitler down, but, but there were a lot of them that just didn't do anything out of fear. You have to be very discerning. Just because someone uh, says they're a Christian or uses Christian faith to support what they say they're doing doesn't mean that it is true. You need to be discerning about that. Whether they are on your side politically or not, don't just believe them because they say, I love God or I go to church. Know your Bible so you can figure out if what they're saying is true.
Jezebel does according to the Jewish law here. She has two men, calls them worthless men. Jezebel herself calls them worthless men. Just get the worst kind of men in town. Two of them, bring them in. Put them at the other side of the table from, from Naboth at the fast. In the Jewish law, if you had two witnesses to make a claim, that, that made it um, be able to be tried in court. You couldn't do anything on the, on the testimony of one witness. You had to have two witnesses. Um, and, and, and they make this accusation against Naboth. It is false. But they say, um, you got Naboth, an honest, hardworking man, and he's killed for no reason because they said he cursed God and the king. He didn't do either of those things, but they kill him. And later on in 2 Kings 9, which we won't get to in this series, um, it, it looks back on this event, and it says that they killed his sons too. Why did they kill his sons? Because if they kill his sons, nobody can inherit the vineyard, can they? So it can be Ahab's. Ahab can have it. So Jezebel comes back to Naboth. Jezebel comes back to Ahab after Naboth is dead. And she says, Arise. Look at that in verse 15. Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise. Take note of that word because it's going to pop up again. Arise. And Ahab arises. He takes the vineyard for himself. This is injustice. God hates injustice. This is injustice. We saw in chapter 20, when, when I summarized it, Ahab should have killed Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, but he set him free. And in this chapter, Ahab should have protected Naboth, but he let him be murdered. There's this interesting passage in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19. It says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, and a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. All seven of these things Ahab and Jezebel commit in this scene. All seven of them. And notice the very first one, haughty eyes. What's that? Haughty is a weird word. It's eyes that look down on other people. So get this straight. God gives a list of seven things that he hates, seven things that are an abomination to him. And the first one on the list is eyes that look down on other people. Is that what you would expect to be the first thing on the list? When you think of the seven things that God hates, uh, I would probably put like terrorism on the top of the list. Or I would probably put like, you know, persecution of Christians on the top of the list. I would probably put like, you know, abortion on the top of the list. God puts eyes that look down on other people. That's the first thing on the list. Understand how this sort of thing that Ahab and Jezebel do here gets started. Because all seven of those things, the two through seven, come out of number one. 
So just to read you them again, um, a lying tongue, these are two through seven, uh, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. All six of those things start at haughty eyes, eyes that look down on other people. You understand how dangerous this can be for you? Because understand, probably none of you on here watching this are planning to murder a guy and steal his garden. But do you understand that injustice, both big and small, it begins with eyes that look down on other people? Ahab and Jezebel look down on Naboth. They're the higher-ups. They've got more authority than he does. They're looking down on him. What, what does this imbecile think he's doing rejecting us wanting this vineyard? Let's kill him. People take advantage of others because they see themselves on higher ground than that person. So I just want you to consider right now and think to yourself, do you look down on other people? Anyone. We tend to think we don't, but we often do. If you just trace some of the words we say, some of the attitudes we have, we very often look down on other people. Do you look down on others because of their race? Because of their gender? Because of their age? Because of their economic class? Because of their religious beliefs? Because of the fact that they're gay? Because of their political views. I want you to understand, you will never, you will never share the gospel with someone you look down on. You will never extend God's good news to somebody that you look down on. You won't. You won't even be kind to someone you look down on. You will not. So I have to constantly check myself and say, am I looking down on somebody? Because if I am, I need to repent. Because looking down on someone leads to the worst kinds of sins. You know, looking down on others is the earliest sign of a dying church. Now, Mount Zion, we're not a dying church, praise the Lord. Um, but if we ever get to a place where we look down on all those other people out there, we're in a deadly place to end up there. Remember that. You may not be planning to kill somebody and take their garden, but if you have a heart that looks down on others, you're in the perfect place to, 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 to commit injustice. Every bit of injustice in the world results from looking down on others. So you think about Nicholas. He elevated his desires above those of Malia. He looked down on her. The, the fact that abortion is so prevalent in this country, God help us, it's because, we, it's because our country looks down on the baby in the womb. The fact that racism is still so prevalent even after civil rights in this country, it's because we tend to look down on other races. The fact that persecution of Christians is so prevalent throughout the world, it's because people look down on Christians. It's those ignorant fuddy-duddies. 
Injustice is all throughout the world, and God hates it. He will deal with it. Imagine Ahab. He's in the garden, he's in there, in the vineyard, and he's cheering, yes, this is my vineyard. Look at those apples. Look at those grapes. Wow, I'm going to plant some carrots right over there. I'm going to plant some watermelon there. Man, I'm going to plant some oranges there and some, oh man, a banana tree right there. Oh, this is going to be incredible. I love my vineyard. And then he looks over, and here comes Elijah. Oh boy. Look at the rest of the passage. Look at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. <coughs> Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and like the house of Basha, the, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And to Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs that eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city of the, the, the dogs shall eat, and anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel." The Lord speaks to Elijah. He says, arise. Remember, Jezebel said, arise, go do some injustice. Now, the Lord is saying to Elijah, arise, go denounce Ahab. Elijah goes up to Ahab. Ahab's there in his vineyard celebrating, and here comes Elijah, the guy who's caused him so much trouble and, and over the past several years. He, he, before he called Elijah the troubler of Israel, now he calls him in verse 20, my enemy. Oh, great. Here comes my enemy. I was having a great day staring at all these fruits and vegetables, and here comes my enemy. There went my parade, and Elijah says, Ahab, you have sold yourself. You're worthless. You have sold yourself. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says that when you sell yourself to do what is evil, you begin to call evil good and good evil. Sounds a lot like the world we live in, doesn't it? You can see how he sold himself there in 
25 and 26, he did it worse than anyone before him. He sold himself to do evil. So God pronounces judgment on him. What's he say? Dogs are going to lick up your blood and they're going to eat Jezebel. Dogs and birds will eat those who belong to him. Passages like this became really clearer to me when I traveled out of the country. Um, when I went to El Salvador, dogs are not cute and domesticated. They're not pets. They may be pets, but they're not cute and domesticated. They're just wild everywhere. It's as common to see a dog running through the woods as it is to see a squirrel running through the woods. They're just everywhere, and they're not cute. They kind of look like hyenas. And that would have been the case here as well. That they're going to eat up. That they're going to eat you up is what Elijah tells Ahab. God is going to destroy those who practice injustice. They are going to get his justice. All of the injustice in the world is going to be done away with. God is is going to pour out almighty wrath and almighty wrath on injustice. I'm glad we worship a God like that, aren't you? People like to talk only about God's love today. And His love is so important. It is. I praise God for His love. But in doing that, when they always talk about the love of God, what happens is that they leave out His justice and His wrath. But a loving God is one that brings justice to evil. He wouldn't be a loving God if he didn't destroy evil and evildoers. We must have a God who is full of wrath toward evil, or we don't have the God of the Bible. People like to make a distinction of, oh, well, the God in the Old Testament, he's, he's just full of wrath. He's angry all the time. He just likes to destroy and smite people. But the God of the New Testament is a God of love and grace, and kindness. No, the God in the Old Testament is absolutely a God who destroys, but it's also a God who's merciful. Look no farther than that passage we read in Exodus earlier. He's a God that, that shows faithful love to a thousand generations. And the God of the New Testament is absolutely a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. Look no further than the book of Revelation. Jesus comes back in the clouds on a horse. He destroys his enemies, and then all those who don't follow him, he throws into the lake of fire for all of eternity. This is the same God who said, love others, right? It's the same God. He throws those in the lake of fire. That's what will happen to people like, like Nicholas, who kidnap girls from their home and turn them into commodities. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's what will happen to doctors who let babies die on a table after a botched abortion where the baby survives. That's what happens to doctors who, who just leave a baby there to die on the table for however long it takes when they survive an abortion. They will, th th those doctors will be destroyed. Do you understand that, that if you don't know Jesus, 
I'm not asking if you're Nicholas or if you're an abortion doctor. I'm asking, do, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Not did you pray some prayer when you were six years old. Do you know him? Do you actually know him? Do you understand that if you don't, you will be destroyed by a just God because you didn't submit to him? His will is that you would repent and be forgiven. But if you continue in your sins and do not bow down at his feet, he will destroy you for your injustice. Because the greatest injustice of all is not abortion and it's not human trafficking. The, 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 as horrible as those things are, the greatest injustice in the universe is that a created being would look at the creator God and say, I'm smarter than you. That's what we do when we sin. If you don't believe me, if you don't think your sin is as bad as someone else's, you clearly don't understand what the Bible says about sin, about your sin. The God of justice pours out justice on Ahab, but we also see the God of grace in this story. In the final few verses of the chapter, 27 through 29, and when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went out dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elisha, Elijah the Tishbite saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days. But in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. A shocking moment happens here. This is insane. Ahab hears what Elijah says, and it actually affects him. He doesn't reject it. He hears it. He repents. Ahab, the worst king in the Bible, repents. He fasts. He has remorse for his sin. He lays in sackcloth and ashes. God sees it, and he says, Have you seen how Ahab humbled himself? God acknowledges that this repentance is legitimate. It's real repentance. God says, I won't do what I said I'll do. The disaster will still come, but it will come after he's gone. Now, this repentance doesn't last. We'll see next week that, that Ahab turns back and goes the other way. His repentance is short-lived. Real repentance, it's real repentance, but it's not permanent. Jezebel lures him back to his old self pretty easily. But God is still gracious toward him in this moment. Measured next to God's justice and God's wrath is God's grace. If you know Jesus, if you know him, if you have received him for eternal life, if you know that he died on the cross to pay your punishment, to pay your penalty, God has given you grace instead of wrath. Understand why that, that makes grace even more glorious. Because you deserve God's wrath. Your sin makes you deserve God's wrath. But you receive His grace instead. You get what you did not deserve. You get what you did not deserve. And God extends that offer of grace to all people. He does not give grace to all people, but He extends the offer to all people. He extends the offer of grace to Nicholas. 
Nicholas could repent of his sins and be saved and redeemed. Because that's how gracious of a God he is. We would never extend grace to Nicholas, would we? When I read his story, I want to find him and I, I want to knock his teeth out and have him tortured to the worst degree and give him the worst death possible and then put him in the hottest corner of hell for all of eternity. That's what I want. But God is a gracious God who offers him grace if he will receive it. If he won't receive it, then, he's, then, then that's what's going to happen to him. God says to Nicholas, you have done a very wicked thing, and you deserve even more than that. But my son took that for you. Now, if you will submit to his lordship, you will have grace upon grace. You will receive eternal life instead of all of that. You know, there's a famous missionary named Jim Elliott. He was a missionary to Ecuador. Um, he was only in Ecuador a, 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 just a tiny few years. He went there when he was young. And him and his two or three partners got, got speared to death by a group of Native Americans there. Um, they were there seeking to share the gospel with them and seeking to lead them to Christ out of their pagan religion. And the, um, the, 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 the men, the Native Americans, came and speared them to death. But later, some workers went back and talked to those people again. And they um, came to Christ. The Native Americans who speared Jim Elliot and his friends together, um, that, that they came to know the Lord. A lot of it was done actually by Jim Elliot's wife. She went back and did some work there. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, if you've heard of her name. They, they went back and they did work among them. And these Native Americans repented of their sins and they received Christ. And, you know, just this week, Adrian read an article that, that one of those men who speared Jim Elliot to death... He died this week. And, and Adrian and I were talking about it, and, and you can only imagine the scene that happened when, when that Native American st stepped into the presence of heaven, and there was Jim Elliot. And they were reunited, and, they, and, and Jim Elliot said, Praise the Lord. The whole reason I was there to, was to see you get saved. And despite the fact that you killed me, it's still happening. You're here now. The purpose of my life has happened. It's here. You are here. What a glorious scene that must have been. What an incredible scene that must have been. And that's the grace of God. That is the grace of God in action right there. Are you okay with that kind of grace? Well, because while many struggle to believe in a God of justice, I think it's probably more difficult to believe in a God who can forgive the most wicked people of their sins. But that's the point of the cross of Christ. He forgives not just good church people, but wicked sinners who humble themselves and repent. He forgives men who spear missionaries to death. There's not a chance for Ahab anymore. 
There's still a chance for the unjust people who live today. There's still a chance for abortion doctors. There's still a chance for human traffickers, for the KKK. There's still a chance for you and your loved ones. We are to do justice and love mercy. We want to see Nicholas and his human trafficking industry put to an end. We want to see girls like Malia saved and protected from evil men, and we fight for that. All the while, we offer the grace of Jesus to people who are far from him, like Nicholas. Everyone in history will either receive the grace of God or the justice of God. People who receive the grace of God will repent of their sins, love Jesus, and submit to him as Lord. They will receive eternal joy forever. People who receive the justice of God will not repent. They will see their own way as being best, and they will go to hell forever. And we see no indication in Scripture that they repent once they get there. People who go to hell still love their sin and hate God. They lived their life running from the presence of God for, for their, their whole life. They will spend eternity in a place where the only presence of God they know is His wrath and full power. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The worm will not die there. The, and, and words cannot describe how miserable of an experience that their, their existence will be forever in that place. It will be the punishment for injustice. Because God is a good and loving God who must punish evil. That's the God we worship. Let's pray. Father, I come to you and, wow. Lord, your justice and your grace are, 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 are two qualities that, that are often pitted against each other, but, but actually work beautifully and perfectly. Oh, what a glorious God we have that he is completely just toward evil, but completely gracious toward evildoers who will repent and come to him. Oh, what a glorious God. Father, I worship you. I stand in awe of such a beautiful God as you. One day you will make everything right. You will punish all forms of injustice and you will give eternal joy to those who um, repented of their sins and received Christ. Oh, I long for that day. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We're waiting for you. But Father, I pray for anybody watching this who doesn't know him. Uh, help them to understand that, that they are in the position of Ahab in this story. And they're in the position of Nicholas. Lord, they will die in their sins and go to hell if they don't receive Christ. They will be miserable forever when they could have eternal joy forever. God, would you draw people to yourself that they would run to you and receive eternal life? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.